0: Thanks so much for finding the What Had Happened Was podcast. I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com, and boy, do I have a really, really good show for you today. I sat down with the authors of a book that detailed one of the most shocking episodes in this city's history. I'm talking about the 1992 Christmas killings. If you were here, you definitely remember how terrorized the city was. As the police uncovered, the whole thing was spurred on by a psychotic girl named Lauren Taylor. The 16 year old and three of her friends killed people they knew, and they They killed random strangers in very vicious ways. And according to all accounts, one of the motives was fun. When the whole thing was over, you had six people dead and countless others terrorized. Steve Grismer, a retired Dayton police sergeant, Judith Mansoor, an educator, and current Dayton detective Dennis A. Murphy reveal exactly how Dayton police tracked down the downtown posse in their new book, The Christmas Killings. 40 Hours to Justice is a really good read. They got the story behind all those crazy headlines from Sergeant Larry Grossnickel and Detectives Doyle Burke and Wade and Tom Larson. 25 years may have passed, but the story still hunts Staten today. But that's not all we talked about. Oh, no, 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 no. We walked down memory lane and found the Moraine Embassy... I love that bar, and so did a lot of people. Still miss it to this very day. We also get into how Grizz and Dennis are trying to preserve Dayton history as part of their work with the Dayton Police History Foundation. I had no idea that Dayton police were the ones who got rid of the horses during the flood. (laughs) And you'd be surprised to find out where the first speeding ticket in the entire United States of America was written. The What Had Happened Was podcast is a product of Dayton.com. Join Cox Digital Marketing, the region's advertising experts, in being a sponsor for this podcast. Like us and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you love to find your podcast. But enough of that, yakety-smackety. Here's my conversation with Dennis, Grizz, and Judas. Grizz is the one with the big, booming voice. The name of the show is What Had Happened Was, right? It's called What Had Happened Was. Okay. So... So say, what had happened was, and then finish the sentence.
1: With
2: regard to?
0: Whatever you want to say.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Is that had to do it all? the. Here's <laughs> what
1: most victims have told me whenever they've gotten shot. What had happened was I was walking down the street minding my own business. <laughs> <laughs> so don't ever mind your own business in the city of Dayton.
0: <laughs> you <must> be 200. <laughs> That's
3: funny. Do you want to do it? I, sure. It won't be. It's probably <laughs> as humorous as that, but I would say what was happened was a, a no, random. What con- was. you said it
0: what, what happened was. Oh,
3: what happened was. What had happened. What had happened <laughs> was um, a random conversation with Dennis about ten years ago turned into a mammoth project, and one I'm really glad and um, feel privileged to be a part of.
2: And what had happened was. It had Dennis not done this, I would have never had an opportunity to meet G- Judas. <laughs> Fortunate in that regard. So there we go.
0: So what was the most surprising thing you found out doing your research? Wow. That's an excellent question. That is a good question. Well, thank you. I went to college. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry about you. laughs> I don't, didn't learn anything, but. I, I think for me, it was
3: we found this out I think the more we investigated and I will say too as much as we could we used we tried to use primary source material when we were reading because it's one thing to sort of go back and read online articles and things like that but we wanted to read things like coroner's reports and things like that so that I think helped us understand some of this better but for me it was the level of viciousness okay and I've been privileged enough not to have ever experienced that in my life. For me, that's what stood out was just the sheer desperation, mm-hmm. I think, that sort of manifested itself
0: in this really tragic, you know, murder and crime spree. That one thing also stood out me from your guys' book, which was is really a fast read and is a good read, was the um, telephone booth. Mm-hmm. And how they, they said, you're going to die today, bitch, or something like that. And it's right. like, why would you even... But first of all, why would you do it? I'm rational, so I wouldn't do it. That sort of thing is just mm-hmm. mind-blowing.
2: It is. It is absolutely. And it was that way with each mm-hmm. person they shot. I mean, they just, no, no level of humanity at all anywhere shown by any mm-hmm. of them. It was just, uh, for them, it was just kind of a routine thing. Well, mm-hmm. let's just, you know, blow this person away. It's, hey, it's fun. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Uh, it was a, just incredible when you look at it. And and for them to think that they could get away with it too, right? That was the other thing. I mean, they were killing so many. Well, I don't want to go in too much detail, but then people won't need to buy the book. Now. Oh, they'll buy the book. I mean, I think hey. people
0: know. I think people know the story. Yeah. And it's one of those stories that fascinates the city because a it happened here, and b it was so right. vicious, and in the time it happened. So that, I mean, like if you give details away, they're not going to not buy the book.
2: Okay. Yeah. Give if us a detail. Amazon dot com. But, uh, the, but the other thing is is we try to we try to lay this out. I, you know, when you read the book Amelia, you noticed that we had like a time we had the time counting up to the 48 hours. Uh-huh. You know, as, as if you could see it rolling on a on a screen uh, on a television screen in a documentary. Um, but we try to unfold the book in the way that the detective saw it too. We start with the Denita Gillette murder at the phone booth, like you say, and that starts the the timeline. If you look through the book, you'll realize that you don't see the suspects, the killers' faces until the until the detectives saw their faces. Oh, okay. You know, so we try to unfold it in the way that they would see it. And we try to, we, we let the, basically the reader have an understanding of the circumstances that they were facing at, at the time that they faced it. So the first murder just seemed like a random robbery murder. Um, and then the second murder doesn't really seem to be connected but now you have two in, 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 in a short period of time. Then you have a third murder, and all of a sudden the detectives are starting to realize, hey, there's this young, very young teenage girl that was seen running from the first scene. Okay. You remember reading this in the mm-hmm. book? Was running from the first scene and was involved in the you know, in the shooting at the second scene, and was, and all of a sudden, it's, how odd is that? How many murders do you have where you have a very young teenage girl
0: None, basically. Right, yeah. none.
2: And all of a sudden, now it's starting to connect, and the detectives are able to provide information to the street crews.
0: And I didn't pick that up from the book, so maybe I just glanced over it. But So she was the the thing that kind of pulled it all together.
2: Well, that was one of the elements, one of the things yeah. that pulled it all together, yeah, for the detectives. They started seeing this pattern.
1: Yeah, pretty quickly, she was a person of interest. And I believe it was Wade Lawson that put a broadcast out over the, the police radio, um, her, specifically her trying to find her to question her. So, that, to me, that's pretty amazing that they put that together pretty quickly. How did they
0: go from being like this kind of kids kind of hanging out at the bus state stop? Do you know what it was that kind of triggered that whole switch? Because something had to switch over.
1: Well, that's <laughs> what's fascinating about this particular case, the murders. It's You have many facets that you see maybe in individual cases. Like this would start out as you know, maybe they're trying to get money together, and it starts out as robberies that leads to murders, and then it goes from that to thrill killings, and then it goes to self-preservation to where they're um, killing people very close to them. So it's This fa- this murder spree, you see many facets.
0: Yeah, cause she, she, they killed her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. They killed, mm-hmm. like, a guy they kind of knew. They, they were just killing people in the street. It was just mm-hmm. like totally a lot of it I mean some of it was random but a lot of it was Mm -hmm. not random too so it was both facets of it kind of bizarre
2: yeah and and the thing is is it is you know people wake up on a Sunday morning and they're reading the paper and it it happens so quickly that all of a sudden they're reading the paper and it's bone chilling it's just like the, the reaction is oh my god look what the heck is happening here you know because as you know newspapers report the facts after the fact right so they're getting everything like a day later, but they're realizing that th- there's a lot happening in a short period of time in this you know wonderful community we call Dayton, Ohio, and uh, and that was the other thing we wanted to make sure that people you know got from the book you know Dayton is it's a smaller city, everybody seems to know everybody, but it's also a, a major a major urban center too. Right. We wanted to convey that you know this is a big city.
0: Yeah, it's not a small city. People want to say it is all the time, but it's actually a pretty big metro area as far right. as metro areas go.
2: Yeah, this wasn't happening in the suburbs, this was happening in you know major U.S. cities.
0: And the crimes
3: were committed in a relatively small area of town. I, I forget how many square miles exactly, but this is not, you know, this, this didn't happen sort of across the entire, you know, metro area. So that I think also makes people fearful. Mm-hmm. You know, why are these seemingly random um, crimes being committed in this um, locale and there, when there are, it doesn't seem to be a real connection among them
2: And the whole story too it was great because uh, John Huber provided it to us and he was the officer that spotted the car that led to the arrest but what was you know we had this story which was a fascinating story and we had actually put together taken from the investigative file was a summary of the dispatch tape just a summary. And so we had taken that and created this faux broadcast transmission between the officers and the the dispatcher and all of a sudden john huber came up and said would you like to have the real thing because i have a copy of it wow so suddenly we were handed this jewel which was the actual trans the dispatch transmissions between and that was cool too sergeant mo perez and, and sergeant john huber at the time Brought a, a new level of excitement to the book. You do a faux uh, transmission, but we couldn't have made it as it ex- really as exciting. I felt as with the real thing provided.
0: Yeah, that was really really interesting. Yeah, for sure. So you probably were around. Well, I guess you both were around when this all was going on, as far as this this case. Why is it something that fascinates folks so much?
2: Well, you know what? I'm going to turn that over to Dennis because it was his idea, and there's a reason for it.
1: For me, there's a couple connections. One connection was I attended Belmont High School. I was actually in uh, uh, Mr. Hoover's business class with Heather Matthews who Oh was wow, one of the perpetrators in this. I, I, I graduated in 92 and then actually Christmas of that year I was actually at Miami Valley Hospital having uh, my oldest daughter and then I remember seeing the news headlines you know all this stuff that's going on and I'm just thinking like wow you just walk down the street and Somebody, you know, shoots you and takes your shoes, that kind of stuff. But a few days later, then, you know, they reported actually who they were. And then I realized, hey, I was in school with one of these people. She actually lived in the neighborhood that I lived in, too.
0: So you knew her?
1: Not very well, but I knew who she was. I didn't really socialize with her or anything like that, but I knew who she was.
0: Yeah, my husband went to Meadowdale, and he knew one of them, too. I think the one, the girl who was the crazy one.
1: Laura Taylor? Yeah. The
0: 16-year-old. Yeah, time. I think that's the one that he went to uh, school with. And, and that's kind of like what I think that, because everybody feels like they had a connection to somebody involved. It was so many people involved. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So the story kind of fascinated you the whole time or something?
1: Not really that time. It was very horrendous and very tragic for the, the city itself and uh, obviously the victims. But fast forward throughout my police career, I had connections with people that were involved in the case. I had, I was very fortunate to have very good detectives to mentor me. One of them was in this case was Doyle Burke. Uh, Gary White was another great uh, detective. He wasn't involved in a particular case. And then the Lawson brothers, Tom and Wade Lawson, they were on the uh, Montgomery County Coroner's Office whenever I worked homicide. And then uh, Sergeant Larry Grossnickel was retired at that time uh, by the time I came on the department. Having been able to work with the stellar detectives um, in casual conversation, talk about different events that happened throughout the city. That's what connected me then to that story and came back to it. Mm -hmm. Knowing them and knowing that they had worked on it and just the story itself, uh, their sacrifice and their um, commitment to the service of the city and the citizens, that's what fascinated me about the entire story. So I just brought that idea to uh, Grizz and Judy and kind of to see what they thought about it
0: now for people who don't know what was the story basically do you
2: want to handle that or i'm looking at you
0: sure and you guys can fill in
2: uh essentially <laughs> well, I'll
3: talk all of us sure um essentially it was a group of teenagers and young adults who kind of fancied themselves as a gang the downtown posse they had hung together but found themselves you know on christmas eve 1992 Um, really at a loss for things to do, things that were productive. In an effort to rob people to get some money and to what we understand to do things like buy drugs and drink and things like that, um, they began to commit crimes. And the crimes appeared to be random. It was very, very challenging for the detectives to connect these murders together, as well as other crimes that had been committed on behalf of this group that were not murders. So it was it was a very tense time. It was especially difficult, I think, because it was over the holidays, when people are typically used to enjoying themselves and their right. families. And so it's jarring for people. I, at the time, I was working at Sinclair College. So I remember this really, really well, and thinking, again, like Dennis, I'm downtown. right? You know, and all this is going on. It was very disconcerting, I think, to the public. What struck me is we began to really read a lot about this case. We really did some, I think, extensive investigation is how hard the detectives worked and what they had to give up in order to make these arrests and bring the perpetrators to justice. That to me was a testament to sort of their commitment to their jobs and really I believe kept the community safe and prevented maybe more crimes from happening. The crimes that were committed I think were especially tragic because they many of them involved really really young people. And as an educator that Really profoundly affected me.
0: Well, the one girl, she was like um, pregnant. Well, she had a young baby, two year old or something, right? The one they shot at the, the payphone. Yes. Right. Yeah, she was trying to get her life together That's right. and doing the right thing. Yeah. So do you, you remember all this happening or did, did it came right back?
3: I do remember, it, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, not this level of detail because there was a lot of stuff I think we found out as we began reading and looking at reports and things like that. But absolutely, I definitely remember it happening.
2: And, you, and we spent well over two years going through documents and just everything we could find about the case. And even after two years we were still coming up with things that we didn't realize that we didn't expect plus as we were going through the details of the case it was just so infused with irony in so many different ways I mean you had you know here you have this you know horrific series of, of murders happening over what's con- most people consider the happiest time of the year right you know the Christmas season um, I was struck when we were just doing some research how uh, and I know, you know, you guys may laugh at me about this, but how how nice the weather was that week. It was in the upper 40s. Really? And it was sunny. And then all of a sudden, when Christmas Eve hit, all of a sudden the, the temperature started dropping. It became overcast. It became cold. It became a typical winter. But as each day passed, and, of course, all these crimes happened within a, well, of course, our book is The Christmas Killings, 40 Hours to Justice. Basically, from the time the detectives first became aware of the first crime until the arrest was made, arrests were made, it was a 40-hour period of time, touched on three days. But the weather had changed to the point that it was the most frigid day of the year on the last day of the spree. And then, when it was over with, all of a sudden, the weather changed again. Oh, that's weird. And it is, and, and, and so it became sunny again, wow yeah so and that's
0: like one of the most is that the most unusual thing you found
2: yeah well that i mean as far as the weather was i mean that just we, i just looked at that and i thought wow that's so symbolic of, uh-huh. of what was happening but th- th- there was other things of course the you know the other irony meant dennis mentioned a couple already i mean the fact that his uh, uh wife had their their child on christmas eve was yeah on christmas eve and uh he went to school with one of the suspects I always thought and i don't want to get into this level of detail in the book but i mean there was a a point where there's this juxtaposition between the gang going to a graveyard
0: yes that was strange
2: and then ending up in a gravel yard and you'd have to read the book to find out what that's about but i mean just these little things just kept popping up
0: Mm -hmm. yeah Marvellus, um he was the main guy right the main actually the girl laura
2: I think our belief is that Laura really instigated a lot of it, not taking any weight. I mean, Keene was willing. I think it was Detective Wade Lawson said he was willing, and he Mm -hmm. did a lot. And obviously, he was prosecuted, convicted, and was put to death for that crime. Uh, But she was behind.
3: And I think that was another irony for us. She was the youngest member of the gang, so she's 15, 16 years old (laughs) and petite. Right. What, what's the likelihood of someone, you know, of sort of that age, that stature, committing horrendous crimes?
0: Yeah. You know? One of the most chilling things I saw was the, the thing about the um, convenience store where the older gentleman gave her money for, like, pop or something like that. Right. And then right. moments later, she, like, is involved in this shootout. Mm-hmm. He escaped harm, but still, like, this guy just gave you money.
2: Right. I think she needed a nickel, if I remember right. Yeah, she needed a nickel, and he gave her a nickel. Because she was a sweet little girl.
0: Yeah, but she was, she was like this little shark. Oh, she was the and, Yeah. Right. Did they, like, could you ever get to why she was so wicked? I know she had a hard life, right? There had to be a reason why. You, you, you don't want to think that a young kid could be evil like that for no reason.
2: But we didn't really go into that aspect. First of all, the whole reason for the book, we were originally, and I still hope, to have this turned into a documentary at some mm-hmm. point. And that was our primary objective, was to write a script for a documentary. It just so happened that our editor moved to Louisville and went away from us. And so we haven't been able to do it, but we decided to take what we wrote and put it in book format. When we were writing this, we were really not going into the level of detail that you might find in a lot of other books. As you know, with, with news organization, when you're writing for a newscast, you can't give all of the detail you'd like to give, so you have to basically compress everything and get as much information as you can in a very short period. So that's what we were trying to convey with the book, was that it's basically a documentary script. We always kept coming back to the same thing over and over again, that our focus, and this was Dennis's mandate, the focus needs to be on the detectives and the work of the detectives. So whenever we would start moving in another direction, we would always come back and focus on the detectives and focus on the police. So
0: you didn't want to focus on the criminals so much. Right. Why did you want to do that, Dennis?
1: I worked on the homicide squad for about, off and on for about seven years. And just working homicides, uh, the impact that it has on families is very severe. Uh, The impact that it has on the detectives working the case. And there's stuff that you see that you'll never forget. So for me, it wasn't about what happened to the victims very tragic and it definitely wasn't about the suspects we don't want to give them any airtime when they don't deserve it what they done was wrong so for me it was the uh, the detectives that worked day and night to apprehend them it was their commitment to the, the citizens of Dayton to me that was the focus
0: I'll talk to me about that. You mentioned that a couple of times. How like they sacrifice? Like, what kind of stuff did they sacrifice? Like what do they have to? Well,
1: okay, just as an example, the routine of a homicide detective. Most people work a forty-hour work week. You may come in and you might work nine to five or eight to four, whatever it is, uh, and we're scheduled to work that as a, a homicide detective. Uh, you spend a lot of days in court, but the other side of it that people don't realize is there's been plenty of times I worked two days straight without going home because you're working on leads on a murder that just happened. So you don't have the luxury of going home when you want to. You're constantly listening for the phone to ring and you have to respond whether it's the middle of the night, whether it's the middle of church, whether it's the middle of a, a school event your kids are involved in. And that's just the level of commitment that you have as a homicide detective. So I just wanted to showcase that with these detectives, you know, and Doyle Burke worked homicide for 22 years. Right. Tom and Wade Lawson probably worked for about 13 years. To me that's a huge sacrifice because it's not your life anymore. It's you're always on the phone. You're always in court. You're always out, you know, beating the pavement, trying to find the next witness or the next evidence clue, whatever it is, to help solve the case, to bring justice and to bring closure for the family. Right.
2: And this was really an extreme example of that too, because now you, you're having all of these shootings happening in a very short period of time, and the in the homicide unit's only made up of, of a sergeant and four detectives. It's not a large. Is that all? Yeah. Well, not I, is, back then. Is that still what it is? Then? No. At that time, it was okay okay it's just it's a very small it's a very small unit now you're having these times being committed one right after the other after the other and they're not happening you know during daytime hours so they're working their daytime shift and then they're being called out in the early or in the evening and then they're working into the late early or early morning hours late into the early morning hours and then they have to turn around and be right back at roll call again the next day and they're doing that over the holidays it's christmas eve was i think a friday and christmas day Mm -hmm. and the day after christmas which was a a sunday they're they're almost working 48 hours in a row maybe longer 72 hours in a row whatever it is i mean they're just working constantly while quite frankly everybody else is off i mean other people that are working at the safety building or working for the courts or working wherever they're off spending time with their family they're not we wanted to kind of showcase that this is part of the the sacrifice uh, of police officers and trying to do their best to keep a community safe especially when you have a murder spree going on which by the way they didn't realize at first
0: as a reporter you know I've done all kind of jobs including like night cops reporter for a while there years ago and I've seen some stuff that you know that I remember and that kind of hunts me too so I can't imagine what you've actually seen because the little stuff I've seen is crazy enough what does that do to you to see all that stuff what does that do to you as a person
1: oh you're definitely a different person Uh, once you become a police officer you're a different person because the the beat cop sees all this stuff too Uh and obviously it's an inherently dangerous job and then you see the effects of what violence does to other people very sad and unfortunate so yeah it affects you
3: And, and i think to your point dennis we saw that real clearly when we interviewed the detectives because it had been you know almost 20 years at that point is that right 20 years when we interviewed them. They didn't have to bring a note. They didn't have to meet ahead of time. They remembered everything.
0: It was tattooed on their brain. It, absolutely,
3: mm-hmm. and so that I mean ha- does have a profound effect on people
0: that have been that invested in trying to do their job. Is that is that what you kind of feel has happened to you too? That you kind of remember certain cases? Like yeah,
1: um, there's some cases that haunt you. There's some cases that
0: don't, you know, right?
1: That don't, and mm-hmm. maybe there's some connection to them or whatever. I guess, but all of them affect you in some way or another. Um, whether you admit it or not, they all do. And obviously we have a job to do, so you kind of push it aside and you continue working. I mean, anybody that's involved in emergency services, whether it's, you know, the nurses, medics, being in combat, you see a lot of things that you might be, even as a beat officer, you might be responding to somebody's worst nightmare, but it's their only worst nightmare that they've experienced in their life, and very tragic to them, but you're experiencing this throughout your tours of duty. So it's cumulative.
2: Uh, repetitive so, stress right right and so when you respond to these things you you actually take a position where you're almost detached from it if you are emotionally if you emotionally connect with what's really happening you're not going to be able to get the job done. right so a lot of people think that you know, they'll see it and say oh that police officer was so uncaring well they're not uncaring it's just they have to detach in order to do the job that they need to do to to solve the crime, we call it being professional. That's just part of uh, being a police officer, working in law enforcement. And and uh, like Dennis said, it's the same way with you know, nursing and uh, you know medics and people in the, in those professions as well.
0: Yeah, I would say the same thing with journalists too, because definitely I like don't remember half the stuff I've done. And people come up and say, "You interview me when um, this tragedy, whatever happened." And I don't, and I don't know who the heck they are, frankly, because mm. you just kind of compartmentalize it and you dump stuff out of your brain. If you kind of have to do right. that, or you'll just implode sometimes yeah. yeah yeah
2: yeah well I know that you and I have met each other a couple of times at the embassy downtown yeah. and you must have really detached because you just looked at me like who is this guy that I'm because you know with?
0: what it is you it's because you don't <laughs> <laughs> you see what had happened was how in the heck am I going to talk my way out of not knowing people that I know we'll see The What Had Happened Was podcast is a product of Cox Digital Marketing. Let this trusted and reliable advertising leader find solutions for your digital need. And be sure to check out the latest addition to the CMGO podcast family. Dayton Daily News investigative reporter Josh Swagger's new podcast, The Path Forward, Dayton Schools, is out there. In this new podcast, Josh talks with experts, leaders, and members of the community on the challenges facing Dayton Public Schools and how to address them. You can subscribe to The Path Forward on Google Play, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. That's iTunes. Okay, well, we're going back to find out how I get out of this whole smammity baminy Because, like, it's because it's not it's situational, too. Yeah you probably weren't in a uniform when I saw you, but you might've been mm-hmm. like dressed up like mm-hmm. a cop, right? Mm-hmm. So if I see you and you're just dressed in normal clothes, mm-hmm. um, I'm like, I know you, but it's like, takes me a minute because sure. it's situational. I do that, I used to do that to people all the time when I worked in Green County. <laughs> oh, there you go. I would see them in the grocery store and I'd be like, uh, hi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, did you film or were you, I can't remember, did you film it or did you record it at the embassy? We filmed it. Why'd you want to do it at the embassy? <laughs> i miss the embassy let's just talk about the embassy was yeah, a great place it really was how do you
2: pronounce tommy and jimmy and, and bill x's last name because i can never pronounce it but He's God, God love him. <laughs> yeah but uh the tommy three, just
0: passed too didn't
2: he he yeah. just passed away yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. uh the, the three greek brothers running a that was that part of that urban element you know that you like you know you have these three brothers from greece that own a, a saloon downtown and a restaurant we know it's a restaurant that uh, brings in these people, like uh, court officials, mm-hmm. newspaper reporters, because the embassy, as you know, was right next door to the Dayton Daily News downtown. Right. And of course, uh, police officers. And of course, you go there uh, to unwind. It's a place to unwind. Police work is pressing, and and uh, sometimes you just have to get it out of your system, and that was a wonderful place to do it, and it was a home for all of us. So dennis came up with the idea of using the embassy i wish i would have i could lay like claim to that because like i can I not dennis came up with the idea and and tommy x said sure yeah,
0: yeah it was a special place we considered it our bar you guys considered in your bar or whatever restaurant mm-hmm. whatever but it was like a place you can go where you can just yeah chill and like hang out right and i don't think we obviously we don't have one of those now which just makes me sad right I, mean, I know yeah people, we all miss it Yeah. Yeah. Let's bring it back. Please. Yeah, let's <laughs> bring it back. Oh
2: my God. <laughs> we should, yeah. What was the name of the building? The not the Schindler building. Wow. Uh, oh, I'm trying to, I can't remember. It was
0: something with an yeah. i I'll, I'll put it in there when I do the editing. <laughs> okay, yeah, you do that. <laughs> You'd be like, you what that. was it? The Schindler building. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so
2: the building's not there anymore. Thank God they finally filled in the hole. It looked like the middle of downtown Dayton had a bomb that hit it. Yeah,
0: and, and the the building, it looks like somebody punched the Dayton Daily News building in the Face,
2: yeah, so, right. but um, that's but, another podcast. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, really. That had been the hangout for cops. Well, it had been open since '69, and I know from the mid '70s on, it had been the hangout. We used to have our policemen ball dinners. The the executive board would have their dinners there. Uh, before the policeman's ball every single year it just was you know retirement parties mm-hmm. the same thing with the Dayton Daily News you yeah, know we had all
0: our union parties yeah there, retirement parties everything at the right
2: movie. it was just uh it was the place and we, and everybody got to know each other you know from other occupations mm-hmm. so it was just a great downtown place the atmosphere was terrific and the the people that owned the place were terrific and Dennis came up with the idea and uh, we set up two cameras I uh, had one behind the bar we had all Four uh, detectives: uh, Larry Grossnickel was the sergeant, and then uh, uh, Wade and Tom Lawson. They're almost like one person, aren't they? Wade and Tom Lawson, brothers. And then Doyle Burke. We had all four of them sitting uh, next to each other. And judy was terrific for doing this too, because it's one thing for Dennis, who's a current Dayton police officer, and me, who's a retired Dayton police officer, to do a story like that. But you need to have that other outside objective person that can pose the questions ask the questions that we would never think of asking and judy was able to do it and she was our interviewer for what about two hours
0: about two hours yeah yeah i bet it would get pretty much inside baseball sometimes if you
2: (laughs) (laughs) she constantly reminded us when we were writing the book that we were writing things and using jargon that nobody else would understand if they were not a cop and so we would find ourselves
0: were you like using 10-4 and all that i don't know no no no, no, no.
2: (laughs) there were times when she made a stand at attention there's no doubt about it but but,
0: uh why are these kind of stories important to preserve and sort of recognize
2: oh my gosh now i'm going to sit here and say, oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> well, I went to college. Right, I, because to there's, I think, you know, <laughs> the Dayton Police Department, as we were talking about earlier, you know, Dayton has a, a rich history, Dayton policing and Dayton law enforcement. And I'm not just talking about Dayton, but I'm also talking about other agency, local agencies have a real rich history and tradition um, that quite frankly, you know, you just, I see it because I'm retired. I'm, a, I'm considered a younger retiree, I would suppose, at age 65 but um, there's not a year that goes by that we don't lose 10 to 15 retired officers. Mm. They die. And uh, when they die, the stories that they have are lost forever. Um, I can think of some that I've gone to before they, you know, not even knowing that they were ill, or I've asked them to provide information that only they would have for the legacy of, of local law enforcement and things that aren't necessarily written down. And then they would pass, and I would never have the information. and It's gone. It's it's gone. So I think the way I look at it is, as much as can be written down, ought to be written down, whether it's uh, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, it's at least the information's there to be drawn upon for maybe some other projects down the line too. Right. Just as an example, um, one of our former
1: chairmen, uh, Jack Barstow, yeah. who unfortunately just recently passed. He was the grandson of Chief Rudy Wurstner. Uh, Rudy Wersner was the dean of police chiefs. He was a chief for twenty-four years in the city of Dayton. Wow! Uh, all the for way for twenty-four from years. For wow. twenty-four years, his career started in nineteen oh two, and he uh, retired in nineteen forty-nine. So yeah, I think he became chief in twenty-five. In nineteen twenty-five. Yeah, and then so I think he
0: I've, rea- I've read about him before. Yeah, on like yeah. Dayton yeah. online. Yeah. Dayton
1: History Online has a story on him.
2: Right, that Grizz wrote. That I wrote. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I'll take credit so on. knowing yeah. Jack. He's
1: the only one that's close enough to his grandfather to tell us stories about his grandfather, just
2: as we were talking about stories that need to be written down. Unfortunately, they're lost. And he was the one, for instance, just a, just a little side note, I mean, he was the one that told me, uh, there's another book I'm going to bring up, uh, Drenched Uniforms and Battered Badges that we wrote uh, a number of years ago, five years ago, at the time of the 1913. 13th flood. Okay. Right, the an- 100th anniversary of it. He was able to tell me about... His grandfather hauling uh, horse carcasses down to Moraine. I had no idea that the police officers. So I did a little bit more research uh, to find out that to remove animal carcasses from the roads was a was a police function. Really, back, back then, and so, but that made it ever more real because he told me about how his grandfather worked for almost an entire week, you know, doing all kinds of things during the nineteen thirteen flood. But one of the duties he had was in, in West Dayton hauling. Horse carcasses out to moraine. You know that would, and be you like, would never know yeah. that because it's not written down anywhere else.
0: You know, the 1913 flood is like such a rich, like so many different cool stories mm-hmm. from his. You know, people who like history came from that flood, and right. it, the way it changed the city is just like unbelievable. Like all the different lives it touched. Right. That would be a cool movie too one day for somebody yeah. to do, mm-hmm. other than like a documentary or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what are some of the first that the police department has done here?
1: Grizzle, have to back me up on this, but the first uh, speeding ticket was written in Dayton Ohio
0: get out of here now Oakwood, Ohio Dayton Ohio Dayton Ohio that's a little uh the first
1: two-way radio and the entire police fleet was here in Dayton Ohio I believe it was that 1938. 19 it was
2: actually 1940 and it was um right before Franklin Roosevelt came to town a campaign swing
1: and then uh we were the first you're doing
2: such a good job of talking about Dayton first Dayton <laughs> police first I thought I'd let you go
1: well so we were the first to have. KDTs, key data terminals, and the police cruisers. I believe that was 87 or 88.
2: And that was in 86, and that was or right before um, uh, President Ronald Reagan came to town. And we've had a number of other things. Arguably, we had the first bicycle squad uh, in the nation. Really? In 1911, arguable, arguably. Who's arguing with us? Uh, well, Berkeley Berkeley Police Department, they claim to have the first. They said they had the first bicycle patrol in the nation in 1911, but I have documents that show that we purchased bicycles for the police department in February of 1911, which is pretty early in that year. Yeah, take so, that Berkeley, right? Right, and I even <laughs> I even sent something to Berkeley asking them to give me the date that they instituted bike patrol.
0: You so you sent a note to him saying, "Give yeah. me the date." Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And they
2: they never replied. <laughs> so cowards. Yeah. And there's just been all kinds of other first or interesting things about Dayton uh, going back to 1933 with the arrest of John Dillinger here, mm-hmm. uh, and of course in '46 uh, the career of George Bugs Moran ended in Dayton, Ohio, with his prosecution for a ten thousand dollar holdup. The prosecution was by Matt Heck Sr., the father of our current prosecutor.
0: Is that right? That's right. I'm gonna say the name wrong. The uh, Dayton Police Federation.
2: No, Dayton Dayton Police History Foundation? Yes. There you go. I told you I was gonna say it wrong. Yeah.
0: How long has that been around?
2: Oh, Dennis, let's see, we started, well, it actually was chartered on January 1st of 2010. Okay. And that was an outgrowth of the exhibit that Dennis was talking about in 2008 at Carillon Park. We, it was such a uh, popular exhibit But all the items that were there at the Dickey transportation center, which is one of their galleries, one of their buildings there, you know, they were all dispersed. They went back to the the people that owned them and uh, people thought it was a shame that all these items of incredible history had basically left the the central location. Beginning uh, right after that, we started talking about developing an organization that would do its best to preserve Dayton police history and try to re-centralize a lot of the artifacts. And of course, Caroline Park is the natural place. So then on January 1st, 2010, we, our organization was chartered by the state of Ohio.
0: Now, are you guys at Caroline Park or is it, is it in basements or where, where, where is the stuff?
2: Well, the, originally it was all in the, uh, we had the exhibit, which was a six month exhibit at the uh, Dickey transportation center, which is, or yes, at which it was the largest uh, facility that they had there for uh, temporary exhibits. Um, that's where all the neat streetcars and the old RTA bus and mm-hmm. all these vehicles are at. Uh, but after six months, it came down. So when it all ended, Wright State University, the Dayton Police Department, individual uh, collectors all took the, those items back. We we're in discussions with Brady Cress Car- at Carillon Park to get a facility there, but of course, it's going to cost money and we're always looking for donations.
0: Pluck, 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 right. Pluck, yeah.
2: <laughs> www.datonpolicehistory dot org. Uh, but anyway, we're looking for support and uh, find you on and, Twitter and
0: Facebook and,
2: <laughs> and and well, we're on Facebook and we have a website. I'm I'm 65, so I don't know what Twitter is. <laughs> but um, but we're we're moving in the direction, and we may have something exciting coming up here in the next month but it's too early to make any announcements.
0: Are you sure you just don't want to announce it right here no, for the What Happened no, Was podcast fans?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> Going to have to wait. <laughs> but for people that love history they'll love this.
0: Now what do you guys want people to take away from this book?
2: Oh my gosh. I, I personally I, I would like them to have a better understanding anyway if not an appreciation for the kind of work that uh, not only the investigators and they're they're the Four featured people, the, the four detectives I've named, but the but the uh, the work that's done by others in law enforcement, I mean, we have Mo Perez, who's a sergeant and was the dispatch sergeant, the role that he played solving this crime spree, and the uniform officers, which, of course, Sergeant John Huber was. So just to have a, a better understanding of the work that police officers do on a day-to-day basis, this is a day-to-day. I mean, it's a very unusual crime, and there's no doubt about it, but they but officers every single day deal with these homicide detectives deal with murders throughout the year i think that's what i'd like to come out of it
0: one thing i was always curious about do you think they did it intentionally around christmas
2: well i don't know i think i think christmas just happened it's the time when you want to buy things get things okay you know it's the the gift giving time of year and the gift receiving time of year and they were in into receiving gifts, and I just think that it just began simply with them wanting money. They wanted to be able to buy alcohol, drugs, what right. have you. They wanted new tennis shoes, obviously. Um, so when I say obviously, it's because that was one of the items that was taken. And, and I think basically they had a, an incurring attitude against other with, with other people. And so it started out, as Dennis said, with committing uh, robberies, and then because they didn't care. They started murdering just because it was fun. And then all of a sudden it became uh, something where they almost challenged each other. And then it got to the point where they had to do it. They thought they had to do it to, you know, keep from getting caught. So it just evolved.
0: What are you guys working on next? Cause you can't just write, <laughs> you can't just write two books together. Right?
2: <laughs> well, we'd like to get the documentary done. Okay. That's what we'd like to yes. do. That's, that's the main goal is to yeah. hopefully you know, we were contacted by a production company out of Maryland that wanted to do something on this story. And they are pretty, putting together a, a, a little docudrama about this story for a series that they do on a, on a cable network. When they talked to, to me and we, we had a discussion, they, they weren't going to portray it the way we want it portrayed. Okay. We want a documentary that mirrors the book. And they have another angle, so you know more
0: sensationalized, more right. And so there. we,
2: you know, we wish them the best, and we hope it turns out to be a really good documentary. But we want to see something that acts absolutely reflects the book as we wrote it, and that's that's the next objective there. Mm-hmm. And we've got great video interview of mm-hmm. all the detectives about an hour and a half
1: interview, great footage that we can use, um, you know, to further this. Uh, we've discussed other projects in the future, but that's later. But
0: this is the one you're going to focus on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So right now.
0: Well, hey, thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate you coming in here and uh, sharing your story with the uh, people who enjoy this podcast and some who don't. <laughs> so whatever. We don't care. We'll take them all. <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> all right. Thanks. You're going to want to get this book seriously. It's really good. You can find The Christmas Killings 40 Hours Suggests on Amazon. Thanks a lot for listening to the What Happened Was podcast. See you later, alligators. Bye-bye, crocodiles.